The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and uh, we're in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 3. You can turn over there. We're going to be in verses 23 to 29. This passage, this um, section of Galatians is very dear to my heart. Uh, I remember taking theology proper from Frank back in 1998, and he assigned J.I. Packer's Knowing God as one of the textbooks, or perhaps it was one of the additional readings that he had recommended. I can't remember. It's been a little while now, Frank, uh, if it was mandatory or not. That was the first time I took that class. The second time I took it, you had switched up the books. But J.I. Packer, in his, his book, Knowing God, um, he identifies a Christian this way. He says, quote, The question can be answered in many ways, that question of what is a Christian. The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father, end quote. Back to his whole chapter on uh, the fatherhood of God is, is a fabulous chapter. It just is so encouraging. I, um, it was one of, the, one of the really motivations in pursuing the subject of my dissertation, God the Father, for all of these years and The thing that's so wonderful about that reality of knowing God as a father is that the old covenant, which Paul speaks of in Galatians, there was not that sense. I mean, there was this corporate sense of Israel as a son. I mean, Isaiah spoke of that uh, and that God had that this son had failed and God was going to send an ideal servant who was his own son. But they individually, the children, the the people of Israel, even those who were devout, those who believed the promises of God regarding the Messiah, they didn't have the same level of intimacy and relationship with God that we do. The New the New Testament says that they looked for these promises. They uh, Hebrews eleven they beheld them as far off, and they they believed these promises, but they didn't yet understand the realities in the gospel. Not only that, they didn't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to open their hearts and minds and have the law written on their heart as the new covenant promised in Jeremiah. And there was this very real sense in which if you wanted to draw near to God and have intimacy with God, what did you have to do? You had to slay animals. You had to clean yourself up. You had to go through all the ritual purifications. And if you did all those things, you could come into the temple. But if you weren't of the tribe of Levi, you couldn't come into the holy place. And if you weren't the high priest, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's glory was manifest over the Ark of the Covenant. And even if you were the high priest, you could only go once a year. And when you went in, you went in with a sense of fear and you went with blood so that you could satisfy the righteous requirement of a holy God. And so what was lying between the holy place and the Holy of Holies was a veil. And that veil was the barrier. It was the, what kept the people safe. It was the means by which they could come as close as they could come into the presence of a holy God who was in their midst. Because after all, the temple was his house. It's a royal house. The lights were on. The candle stand was there. Food is on the table. There's bread. You have the Ark of the Covenant, which is his footstool. You have the, his manifest presence, which is a picture of his throne. And it's this royal house where God dwelt among his people. But that was the closest they could come. And then Jesus comes as the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as the high priest of the better temple because his body is the temple. And he replaces all of the old covenant ways to draw near to God. In fact, Hebrews says this is what's so wonderful about Jesus is that he entered into the holy place, not the one made with hands on the earth in Jerusalem. He entered into heaven, into the very presence of God himself, and he didn't take the blood of bulls and goats that that can't even cleanse the conscience. What he did was he offered up his own blood, and he made a way for us to draw near to God the Father, not in the temple in Jerusalem, 
but in heaven itself, into the very presence of God. And then Hebrews says, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, parousia, and find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Why? Because now that we're in Christ, and this is going to be Paul's argument in this section, now that we're in Christ, God is our Father and we are His Son. We are His daughter. And we now have a relationship that is far greater, far more intimate than the Old Covenant could even provide. The Old Covenant could only condemn. It was a jailer until Christ came, but now that Christ has come, we're sons and daughters of God. And we have confident access. This is what's so precious about this. And the reality is that we live in this already not yet tension. And even if you've been saved a long time, you still come across seasons in your life where you don't feel near to God. A number of years ago, I actually had to look it up, but it was in 2005, no, 2004, I wrote a song about forgiveness. I was wrestling with this time in my life. I didn't feel near to God, and I, I was, there were no, quote, uh, uh, unrespectable sins. I was wrestling with the pride of my own heart. And, and I was in ministry, in youth ministry over in Napa, and I felt like I knew more than the elders there, and I could teach better than my father-in-law, and I wasn't given an opportunity, and, you know, I was 20-something years old and full of pride. And, but I saw it for what it was, and I was disgusted with it. I, I, I didn't want it. I wanted it out of my life, and, and yet I, it just was manifest in so many ways. And so I wrote a song, Forgiven, and I just wanted to read you the lyrics because I think it pertains to this passage Here I am, O Lord, back on my face again. How many days, my God, till you free me from my sin? I have failed, I am weak, I have brought you shame. But in your word, I find the strength to get on my feet again. I'm forgiven, forgiven. I'm washed and clean by the blood of Jesus, my Savior and my King. Forgiven, forgiven, you have cast my guilt, my sin, to the bottom of the sea. It's Micah 7, 7. Forgiven. Now I come to you, united with your son. How can it be that I can stand before your throne? I am loved, I have peace, I am now your child. And on my knees I worship you, for I am reconciled. You see, this is the hope of the gospel. We're united to Christ. We're reconciled to God the Father. We're his child. We have peace with God. We are loved. And so even if we're battling sin in our lives and sin in our hearts, and even if we don't feel near to God, if you are a child of God, what you need to hear this morning more than anything is that God is your Father. He's in heaven. He's on his throne. He loves you. He gave his Son for you. He's poured out his Spirit upon you, united you to Christ. And so you don't have to live As if you're under the law and under a curse and in bondage anymore. You can live with the freedom of a son and daughter of God. And you don't have to sin anymore. And you could be changed and you could be more like Jesus. And you can actually grow in your holiness. And it's not totally up to you. Praise the Lord. The Spirit of God is producing this in you by the Word of God. So that you'll look like the Son of God. Who is the image of God the Father. And so that's what this passage brings us. And so far in Galatians, we've basically seen that the law brings a curse. The law was never intended to justify anybody, to declare anybody right before God, that righteousness can only come by faith alone. And there were these Judaizers that had come up from Jerusalem and started teaching in these churches in Galatia. And they started teaching that, yes, the law... It does bring a curse, but also it brings a blessing because the only way you're going to grow in holiness is if you obey the law. In fact, if you want to reach the second level of Christianity, the upper echelons, the the spiritual realms, you need to obey the law. If you don't obey the law, you're just going to muck around in the the ABCs of Christianity and you're, you're just not going to reach maturity. And Paul is angry with these churches that they have abandoned the gospel. I mean, he basically calls them stupid, ignorant, foolish Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Who has put a spell on your minds? It was before your eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, he says. You knew the gospel. And then in chapter 3, he goes through this long argument 
to demonstrate that the law was never given to make anybody holy. It was given to shut people up under sin, to condemn them. Here in our passage this morning, I'll read it to you and then I'll continue. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. I'm afraid that there's, you know, I don't see that there's this push in evangelical churches today to put them people back under the law of Moses in order to be spiritual. I mean, maybe it happens in other ways. One of the ways I think it happens is people are taught something like this. Someone will say, now, dear brethren, you need to be very good and you need to love your neighbor and you need to love Jesus and you will be saved and you will be holy. Now, that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is you need to believe the message regarding Jesus and you will be saved. You need to put faith in Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. See, it's not love. It's saving faith that is the saving grace. And sometimes we get the cart before the horse. A sentimental love of Jesus which does not spring out of faith in him is a counterfeit of love. It's not the love that God the Father sheds abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This kind of teaching makes love itself a new kind of law. And binds people because what happens when you don't love God or don't love your neighbor enough? If that is the law, the measuring stick by which you are accepted before God, what happens when you don't love your neighbor or love God? If you're honest with yourself, you've been through those times, haven't you? Even if you've believed the gospel since you were a little kid, you've been through those times where you have not felt near to God and you don't love God enough. Your love is not strong. Or there's people in your life and relationships you have where you just don't love them. And it may not be because they're the jerk. It might be because you're the jerk. And if your basis of of acceptance before God and, and growing in holiness is if you do those things enough, you're putting yourself back into bondage. What Paul teaches over and over, what the New Testament teaches over and over is that we don't live for faith, we live from faith. What do I mean by that? It's who we are in Christ that we live out of. We live out of who we already are. We have a new identity in Christ. We've been changed in Christ and we live out of that. We don't try to earn that by what we do. No matter how good those intentions are. And the minute we start believing this message that says we need to earn God's favor... The only way we're going to earn God's intimacy is if we do this list, however good it is. We've put ourselves under bondage. But by saying that, I don't want us to think that somehow we're not under any law at all. That we're antinomian, that we could just sin that grace would abound. Because Paul says, that's not what's going on either. So, the law. In verses 23 to 25, we see the first thing we see, the law was a jailer. It was a jailer. Verse 23, Paul says him, and I think what he means is the Jewish people were imprisoned under the law. Now before faith came, we, and I think he's talking about Jewish people there, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Well, before this faith came, what is that? Look back at verse 22. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He, he had just said that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, he now gives shorthand in verse 23 and says, before faith came. Before that faith, believing the promises of God regarding Jesus Christ, before that faith came, 
Before the gospel message came, we were imprisoned. We were shut up under the law. We were held captive. And it's parallel in verse 22 again to Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The Word of God imprisoned everything under sin. So even if Paul means the Jewish people in verse 23, clearly Gentiles, all of us who are non-Jews, verse 22, it's true as well. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And if you go over to Romans 1 through 3, you read that in Paul's argument there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, both Jew and Gentile, are shut up under sin. And so the law was a jailer. And God intended the Mosaic law to only be in fact only be in effect for God's people until the coming of Jesus. In other words, the law was temporary. The promise is what's permanent. Now, this would have shocked the Judaizers, those guys who had come up from Jerusalem to Galatia and were teaching that they needed to put themselves under the law to be spiritual. For them to hear that the law was temporary, they would have said, no way. To say the promise is permanent... And what God promised to Abraham is greater than the law given to Moses. They would have said, no way. It would have shocked them. But Paul says this is exactly what the gospel teaches. And that's why the law was never intended to make anyone righteous. You can demonstrate the temporary nature of it by the fact that no one ever was made righteous. By the law. The purpose of the law is to shut everyone up under sin. Verse 22 Verse 23, held captive. This is what makes the gospel so glorious. We don't have to do anything to receive the benefits. We believe by faith alone in Christ alone. And it's through grace. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ has done it all. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He says Jesus Christ came at the fullness of time, at this time when the law was going to be set aside, and he was born under the law, and he was born for a purpose, and it was to redeem those who were under the law, to purchase them out of the slave market, as it were. So why? So that they could receive adoption as sons. And ladies, don't be bothered by this. I know we've said this a number of times. This idea of sons, it's not patriarchal. It's the idea that this is the inheritance rights. The one who has inheritance rights is Christ, the Son of God. And if we're in Christ, we're a son of God, and so we have inheritance rights. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Ephesians says. We're going to inherit everything with him. And this is a glorious promise. And like I've said before, the men are called the bride of Christ. So there's equity there, isn't there? You're called sons, we're called the bride. He says this is the glorious news of the gospel. We simply believe the report by faith. And we receive the promise as a gift. I mean, think about this. Faith is as old as Abraham. It's actually older than that, isn't it? Because men began to call upon the name of the Lord in the early pages of Genesis. But faith, as we see it justifying, is as old as Abraham, Genesis 15. Faith, specifically revealed in the gospel, though, awaited something very important, and it was the coming of Jesus to be the Messiah, to reveal the gospel. Now, this should bring you great hope. You know why? Everything lost in the fall in the garden, is regained in Christ. Everything that's demanded by the law in the old covenant, it's fulfilled by Christ. Everything that's foreshadowed in the old covenant finds its completion in Christ. You know what that means? We have all the answers and we have all the hope in Christ. So the law was a jailer, verse 23. And then he says in verse 24... Back in chapter 3, it's a guardian. You'll recognize this Greek word, a pedagogue. Pedagogue, pedagogue. Now, our idea of a pedagogue is different than the Roman idea of a pedagogue. 
when we think of a pedagogue, we think of a tutor, a teacher, someone who instructs primarily. And it's because of the way it's been used in our educational system, pedagogical training. But in Roman society, a pedagogue was not primarily an instructor and a teacher. They had another word for that. It was didaskalos, a teacher. A pedagogue was a slave who was not an educator. He was, what's the word? A babysitter. And he would go with the child, a trusted slave who would take care of a son until the son came of age in wealthier households. Which is why the ESV translates it as a guardian. He's a guardian of the child. And I want to read to you uh, Timothy George's commentary on what this pedagogue was like. No doubt there were many pedagogues who were known for their kindness and held an affection by their wards. But the dominant image was that of a harsh disciplinarian who frequently resorted to physical force and corporal punishment as a way of keeping his children in line. For example, a certain pedagogue named Socrates was described as a, quote, fierce and mean old man because of his physically breaking up of a rowdy party. He then dragged away his young man Charles like the lowest slave and delivered the other troublemakers to the jailer with instructions they should be handed over to the public executioner. Wow. The ancient Christian writer Theodoret of Cyrus observed that, quote, students are scared of their pedagogues, end quote. And well, they might have been because pedagogues frequently accomplished their task by tweaking the ear, cuffing the hands, whipping, caning, pinching, other unpleasant means of applied correction. This is the picture that Paul has in mind when he says the law was a guardian until Christ came. And some of you may have been taught that this, in fact, some of our translations say the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. I don't think that's a very good translation of what Paul's getting at here. It's not talking about, Paul's not talking about individual salvation as if you heard the law individually and it was your tutor which led you to the gospel individually that you believe by faith. We can see in the context what he's talking about. Verse 17, for example, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. He's talking redemptive historically. In history, Abraham was given a promise. 430 years later, the law was given to Moses. Then the law was a guardian for this period of time in redemptive history until Jesus came. That's what Paul's talking about. Redemptive history. He's giving milestones in history not the individual process by which you're saved. It's it's redemptive historical. And what he says is, the law was a jailer until the coming of Christ. Verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith. And there he is talking individually, right? We're justified individually by faith. Jesus Christ paid the debt, removed the guilt, provided righteousness as a gift. And our faith, is not the cause of our justification. What is the cause of justification? The finished work of Jesus. That's the cause. Our faith is simply the means by which we're connected, united to the righteousness of Christ. That's why we can sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Also, justification is not a process. It doesn't require our perseverance. It's a single one-time act of faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have presently peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that justification is based upon the blood and imputed righteousness of Christ alone and nothing else. And he knows that's what holds the only real hope that we have of finding acceptance with God. And even though we're justified, we still stumble and fall. The only thing that's going to keep us persevering to the end is the knowledge that our acceptance by God of us is not based on us, but on Christ for us. His righteousness achieved for us. That's why the assurance of our salvation is not ultimately internal to us. Yes, 
John writes First John to say we might know that we have salvation. We might know that we're born again. We might know that we're children of God. And there are some subjective things like the Spirit of God indwelling us and teaching our hearts. But ultimately, if you want to have assurance of faith in Christ, ultimately it's outside of you. Your assurance is every time you remember and proclaim that Jesus died for your sins and was nailed to a cross and raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father and he completed the work and it's finished and you've been united to him. And if you believe that message, you have assurance that you're saved. And then he says in verse 25, now, now that faith has come in history, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under this pedagogue, this guardian. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under it. It doesn't mean we're without law. That's what I said a little bit earlier. Because if we take this verse and and just rip it out of the context of the New Testament, we could teach that. We're no longer under the law. We can live like we want. Paul says, turn over to Romans chapter 8. I want to take you to a couple passages to see you, to give you the full teaching of the New Testament on this, because I think this is really important. Romans 8, 2 and 3. We might as well read verse 1. That's a great verse, too. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, this curse of the law stands over anybody who's outside faith in Christ Jesus. If you have not put your faith in Christ, you stand under this curse of the law. Turn over to, back over to Galatians chapter 3. We covered it last time. Verses 10 and 13. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you want to live under the law... You're under a curse. Because if you want to live under the law, you have to do everything in the law. And you can't. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So apart from Christ, the only way to attain Righteousness is perfect obedience to God's law, which is an impossible task to sinful humanity. Turn over to Colossians 2. Start in verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, the law, the demand of the law, the unfulfilled nature of the law stands like an unfulfilled and unfulfillable IOU against sinful humans. So this is is where we stand in regard to the law. It was never intended to justify. It was never intended to make you righteous. It was a jailer intended to shut up people under sin. It actually was a preventative to keep people from sinning as great as they wanted. But it was never going to bring you near to God. Now turn back to Galatians. This time over to chapter 5. Verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes into a list of all of these sinful deeds down to verse 21 and then he talks about the fruit of the spirit in verse 22 and 23 and at the end of verse 23 he says against such things as the fruit of the spirit there is no law what does he mean by this he says if you're led by the spirit that is the spirit of god is indwelling you and you're part of the new covenant and you have jesus and you're united to him you're no longer under the law of moses 
And guess what? You're going to be producing things in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. He says all of these things are going to be produced. And guess what? Against such things as these, there's no law. Over to Romans 6. Romans 6, 14 and 15. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means may it never be. God forbid. Meganoita is the, is the Greek. May it never happen. He says, you're not under law, you're under grace. And so guess what? The reality of the Spirit of God living in you, producing fruit in you, you are no longer under the dominion and power of sin. You've been redeemed out of it by the blood of Christ. You're under grace now. And you then, verse 12, do not need to let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's something the gospel can do that the law could never do. You can actually say no to sin. You can become more holy. You can become more like Jesus. Well, one last passage. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. What law are we under then? If we're not under law and we're under grace, I think what he means there is we're not under the Mosaic law. We're under grace. Because over in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, verses 20 and 21, I think this is really helpful. You all know this passage. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. What's he saying there? He says, a Jew is under the Mosaic law. And he said, to win Jews, I came as one as if I was under the Mosaic law, even though I'm not really under the Mosaic law. That I might win those under the law. That is Jews who are under the Mosaic law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, Gentiles, I became one as outside the law. Then he gives the explanation. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. It's really helpful. He says, I'm no longer under the law of Moses, as the Jewish people are, even though I will gladly follow those laws in order to win Jewish people. He says, but to the Gentiles who are outside of the Mosaic law, he says, I want you to know something. I'm not outside of the law of God. I'm under a new law. I'm under the law of Christ. In fact, this is his argument back in Galatians. I want you to see this connection. Because in chapter 3, he's talking about the Mosaic law can only condemn. It was a jailer and a guardian until Christ came, and it was temporary. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the guardian Then he says over in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set us free. Even though we're free, we still have certain moral commands. Down in chapter 5, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. We're called, we saw in verses 22 and 23, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Against such things there are no law. And he concludes in chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This law of Christ Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Remember what the Great Commission says? Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey what? All that the Lord Jesus has commanded. You see, it's not that we're outside, even though we're no longer under the law of Moses, we're still under the law of Christ. And we still have an obligation to obey The law of Christ. But we don't obey the law of Christ in order to be acceptable to God. Christ has made us acceptable to God the Father. Now we obey the law of Christ because our hearts have been changed and we want to. And we live out of who we are in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what Paul is getting at over and over with these Galatians. By following these commands... 
to love one another, to bear fruit, to bear one another's burdens. In doing so, Paul says in Galatians 5 and 6, you fulfill the law of Christ. What's amazing is in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we don't have a long list of laws. We don't have commandments on tablets of stone. Ten of them. Instead, we have all of these commands in the epistles that are rooted in the gospel, rooted in the finished work of Christ. And the law is no longer written on tablets of stone. It's written on the tablets of our hearts by the Spirit of God. And so when Paul speaks of family situation and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's fulfilling the law of Christ. Why? Because it's rooted in the gospel. We're to love our wives just like Christ Jesus loved the church. And how did he love the church? He loved the church when she was an enemy. He loved the church when she didn't want him. He loved the church and went to the cross when the church was at war with him. And crucified him and yelled and said, crucify him. That's the kind of love Christ had. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives are to submit to their husbands just like the Lord Jesus Christ submits to the Father. It is godlike to submit. It is not demeaning. Fathers, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, the Lord Jesus. All of these motivations are given through the lens of the gospel. And the Spirit of God is producing this in us so that we'll become more like Christ. Beholding His glory as in a mirror, we're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another by the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, And so the law was a jailer that shut up Jews under sin, Jews and Gentiles both, because verse 22 said, Scripture imprisons everything under sin. But now that Christ has come, now there's freedom. Freedom not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And that's what he says, we're one in Christ. Verses 26 to 29, back in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You're all sons of God through faith. In verse 7, back in chapter 3, verse 7, through faith, both Jews and Gentiles could be sons of Abraham, that is, sons of the promise. Here, through faith, both Jews and Gentiles are sons of God. And why? Because they are in Christ Jesus. As an exercise, if you read through the Bible this year, one one thing you could do is, as you read through the New Testament, look at every time the authors use the phrase in Christ or in Jesus or in him or in the beloved and just highlight it and see what the reality is that, that the passage is talking about because all of the benefits we have in Christ, we could just preach on that year round for the rest of our lives and never exhaust that. It is good news. It should give you hope this morning. It should put a smile on your face. You would actually say amen. Amen. <laughs> In Christ, here he says it again, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Just as Jesus is God's son eternally and inherently, we in him become adopted sons and daughters, right? Once again, this idea of sonship as inheritance. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3. I count all things to be loss and count them but rubbish, dung, Scubalon. I count it as rubbish that I may gain Christ and what? Be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is what Paul says, I want to be found in Him. All of those good works I did under the Mosaic law, I count them all as a big steaming pile of dung. For the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him and having his righteousness, not my own. Paul wanted to be found in Christ. 
He knew there were no works he could do in his own strength that would please God, but rather the works that are done as a result of being in Christ, those are the ones that are found to be righteous and make us righteous. And then he says in verse 27, if you're a son of God, a daughter of God, if you are part of the family of God and you have intimacy and relationship with God as your father, it's because you've been, verse 27, baptized into Christ. You've been placed into Christ. You've been put into Christ. This is the, the language of new identity. The language of new identity. Frank's got a great list in his soteriology notes of what this means to be in Christ. He says it means you're part of a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. And there, the new creation, it's not, I don't think that's talking about regeneration, it's talking about new identity. You're a member of Christ's body, you're a son of God, you're a person dressed for eternity with God. If you're put into Christ, you're now accepted in him, Ephesians 1.6. You're an object of favor in the beloved one. You're brought near to God, Ephesians 2.13, if you're in Christ. You've been seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. You're guaranteed freedom from condemnation, Romans 8.1. We read it earlier. You're a saint, Philippians 1.1, in Christ. You're one with all other believers in Christ. And you've been given credit for having already died with him, been buried with him, and been raised with him, Romans 6, 3 to 5, in Christ. You should take that. It's a good class, Frank's soteriology class, by the way. He says, this is what you have in Christ. If you've been baptized into him and given a new identity, you've been put in him. And in Christ, at last, we are what God intended humanity to be. And he's renewing the image of his son in us. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These intermingled distinctions of race, ancestral religion, social class, and gender... Apart from Christ, you know what they produce? Suspicion, distrust, prejudice, bigotry, racism. That's what it produces. We can just look at our country. Apart from Christ, that's what you put a bunch of people who are from different races and religions and social classes and genders together. That's what it produces. But in Christ, and, and, and by the way, the ancient world was just like the modern world in its network of prejudice and suspicion and arrogance. In fact, it was so ingrained in the ancient world, it was thought to be normal and natural. Now, these distinctions, they still exist in Christ. We can look around this room and see racial distinctions. We can see gender distinctions. We can see probably even social class distinctions. But in Christ, even though they still exist, they don't make you any less of an heir, a son or daughter, a child of God. That's what Paul's getting at. They don't make you any less than, than, than what you are because you're united to Christ. That means if we think we're better because we're male or female or we're black or we're white or we have money or we don't have money, if we have this idea that we're better inherently or just somehow because of who we are, we're not living out of the gospel. He had already gotten into this, didn't he, in chapter 2. And he brings it up again here as an application of the gospel. And I think it means we need to work against these things in our culture and in our society and speak to these things out of the gospel and not be satisfied with the status quo because Paul was not satisfied with the status quo. He wasn't saying, well, you know, you Gentiles, you're just Gentiles and yeah, why don't you just go ahead and be circumcised? After all, that's the pressure the Judaizers want you to do so you'd fit in to this brand of Christianity. He says, no, that's another gospel. That's adding works to grace. He says, we are all one in Christ. And then he says in verse 29, if you're Christ's, 
Then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now the Judaizers, if they had been insisting that in order to become a true son of Abraham, you had to, as a Christian, Gentile, follow Jewish practices, Sabbaths or dietary laws or circumcision or whatever, then Paul counters their argument and says the only way of becoming a son of Abraham that really matters, the only way you're really going to become a son of God, which is the way to become a son of Abraham, is through faith in Christ and by union with him. That's the only way that matters, is the gospel. By faith alone in Christ alone. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, in that same chapter on the Father, he writes this. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, in the same way, You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is the thought, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. This is why I wanted to write my dissertation on the subject of God the Father. It's very practical It's very pastoral. This isn't an academic exercise. This is something that you and I need to know. If we really understand the love of the Father in the gospel, that he would really give his son for us to reconcile us to himself, not only to save us from our sin, but to call us into this new relationship with him to be pleased with us as sons and daughters, to be able at the end of our lives to say, well done, to usher us into his presence. That shouldn't, that shouldn't just be an academic exercise. That should melt our hearts. It should change our affections. God is my father and he loves me. And he knows everything about me that you don't know. And he still loves me. And he's my father and he's forgiven me in Christ and he's seated me in the heavenlies in Christ and he's given me everything in Christ. And when I pray to him, he hears my prayers. And when I draw near to him in in meditation and communion and fellowship with him, he's near to me. Because, oh, by the way, he drew near to me first in Christ. He's poured out his spirit. You see, this should This doctrine of God as Father and you being sons and daughters of God, it should dislodge whatever sin is in your heart. It should knock it loose like a hydroblaster on crusty old barnacles on the bottom of ships. The doctrine of the love of God the Father for you in Christ ought to knock all of that sin loose in your heart. It should cause the path of your lives to change. It should compel you to pursue holiness, not in order to earn his favor, but because he's already put his favor upon you in his son. It should compel you to a life of prayerfulness. It should compel you to fight fear and anxiety and lust and greed and pride and prejudice and racism and whatever else. It could cause you to be like Jesus and want to be like him. 1 John 3, 1. I memorized it in a song as a little kid. And uh, it was the King James Version, but I'll read you the ESV Version. Even though I like the word behold better than see. See what manner of love the Father has given to us. Behold. Stop for a moment. Look at it. Have your undivided attention on this. What kind of love has the Father given to us? that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's as if John knew, you're not going to believe that. And so let me add, so we are. We are children of God. We really are. What kind of love? Marvel at it. This is why we take the table. To marvel at the Father's love for us by giving us his Son. 
his body broken, his blood shed. Behold, marvel it, rejoice in it, celebrate it. Live out of it today. I want your joy to be so full in Christ that it is indestructible and the worries and the cares that you have when you go back home, whatever's in the mail, whatever bills, whatever news, whatever trouble you have in your relationships, I want your joy in Christ to be complete, to be full. Because the Father in heaven loves you and has made you his child in Christ. And I want you to believe that with all of your heart instinctually. I want it to be pressed out of you and overflowing. Father, would you do this work in my brothers and my sisters? This is what we need more than anything. And we are so prone to just want a new kind of law. Just give me a checklist. Just give me Give me something that I can do that would then just make me acceptable to you and make you hear my prayers and and I could get it done in an hour and then I don't have to deal with it. Father, we don't have a relationship with a rule book. We have a relationship with the true and living God. And you have written your law in our hearts by the Spirit in the new covenant. And now we draw near to you in, in your Son, Oh, Father, would you do a work in us? We don't want to be the same today. We want to go from here changed. I want my brothers and sisters to live out of who they are in Christ, not under condemnation and slavery to some man-made law or even the, the great law that you gave in the Mosaic law. Father, do this in us. I pray in Jesus' name. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.